Get the education you've been denied in the Counter-University Classroom from the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Educating for Liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You are listening to the Counter-University Classroom from the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. I'm your host, James Davenport, and this week we'll be hearing a lecture from Harvey Mansfield on manliness. Professor Mansfield is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Government at Harvard University, where he has taught for more than 40 years. He is the author and translator of numerous books, including his highly regarded translations of Tocqueville's Democracy in America and Machiavelli's The Prince. The topic of this lecture, however, has to do with his book on manliness, published in 2007. This lecture was given at ISI headquarters in 2004 as a part of a lecture series for the cadets from West Point. If you enjoyed the lecture, hop over to isi.org join to sign up to be a member and join us at an event like this one. Now, here is Harvey Mansfield on the virtue of manliness. It's a pleasure to be here with my friends at ISI, and it's an honor to address cadets from West Point. My subject is manliness. I'm writing a book on manliness. And so that's what I want to talk about um, this evening. We live in a gender-neutral society, a society in which sex is, your sex is meant to be of minimal importance. It doesn't give you your duties, it doesn't give you your rights, and it doesn't give you your place. So manliness, a quality which if not confined to one sex, at least hovers over one sex, the male sex, stands as a kind of obstacle to the gender-neutral society. So that's why I wanted to take up the question of manliness. We're in the process of making the English language gender-neutral, and manliness, which is the quality of one gender or one sex, seems to describe (coughs) the essence of the enemy we are attacking, the evil we are eradicating. Recently, I had a call from the Harvard Alumni Magazine asking me to comment on a former professor of mine who was now being honored. Responding too quickly, I said, what impressed all of us about him was his manliness. There was a silence at the other end of the line. And finally, the female voice said, could you think of another word? But manliness is still around, and we still find it attractive. What do we like about manliness? Two things, I would say, for a start. The confidence of manly men and their ability to uh, to command. The confidence of a manly man gives him independence of others. He's not always asking for help or directions or instructions. He's in control. And he's in control when control is contested. He knows his job, and he stands fast in that knowledge. If he doesn't really know his job, his confidence is false, and he's just boasting. If he knows it, but lets himself be pushed around, he's also not really confident. He merely has the basis for confidence. The first case of boasting is a manly excess. The second is a defect of manliness. For some reason, manliness includes, or is hospitable to, too much manliness. 
but it emphatically rejects a person who has too little of it. So a manly man is often portrayed in novels, in the movies, or wherever, in exaggeration. Even though too much manliness is also a defect and can have disastrous consequences. The independence of a manly man would keep him from getting involved with other people. He would be aloof, satisfied with himself and none too interested in other people's problems. At the least, he would wait to intervene until he is called upon to do so. But that degree of independence is in tension with the other manly element, the ability to command. The manly man is good at getting things done. And one reason is that he is good at ordering people around to get them done. In politics and in other public um, situations, he willingly takes responsibility while others hang back. Um, he not only stands fast, but he steps up to, what, to do what is required. In private life, in the family, this ability makes him protective of his wife and children because they are weaker. Being pro protective as opposed to nurturing is a manly form of responsibility in private life analogous to getting into politics in public life. In both, there is an easy assumption of authority. Manly men take authority for granted, the need for authority in general, and their own authority in particular. To the extent that all of us recognize the need for authority, whether emergency or every day, we are attracted to those who seem to radiate authority and thus inspire confidence. Nor is it clear that women want to do away with manliness in the more moderate form of the gentleman. It is for them, I suspect, still something of a treat to be in the company of a man who behaves like a gentleman. Women are quite expert in the interpretation of small courtesies, and they are still in the habit of awarding, of awarding points to men who offer them, especially in the early stages of acquaintance. Women are still very observant, more so than men. And you, as a man, can be sure that instead of just being themselves, they're looking at you to see what you are doing for them. Are you showing interest? And if so, how? Moreover, precisely in times of greater sexual freedom, it is good to be someone with you, to, to be with someone uh, you, as a woman, can trust. A gentleman is a man who is gentle out of policy, not out of weakness. So he can be depended upon not to snarl at or attack a woman when he has the advantage or feels threatened. It can be delightful, of course, to be surprised, as long as one is pleasantly surprised. <laughs> With a gentleman, you can hope, perhaps even expect, that most of the surprises will be of that sort. But this makes it sound as if manliness is altogether a wonderful thing. Aren't there some doubts that one can hold about manliness? Let's look at two well-known authors who show their doubt of manliness in two well-known writings. First, 
Recall the incident in the first chapter of Tom Sawyer between Tom and the new boy in town. It is a dispute over nothing, arising merely for the sake of superiority, a meaningless argument, vain boasting on both sides, a line drawn in the dust, the dare to step over it accepted, a scuffle followed by recriminations and threats. It's not hard to guess that this is Mark Twain's picture of manliness, done in childish caricature. He seems to say that manliness is childish, only perhaps not so funny, and its irrationality not so obvious or so innocent when assumed by adult males. In the adult version, this scuffle is a war. Twain's critique, though this is just a glimpse of a wonderful book, resembles a woman's disdain for men's foolish daring. Another view of manliness can be found in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. At the end, in Mark Antony's tribute to Brutus, the speech ends, quote, his life was gentle and the elements so mixed in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, this was a man. What man would not like that to be said of him? Of course, Brutus has just lost the battle and died, has died by his own hand. So any tribute from nature would be a kind of consolation in defeat. Indeed, we perhaps especially reserve tributes to manliness for noble losers. Nothing more substantial is left to them. But we human beings have to make the tributes. Nature, unfortunately, does not stand up and speak for itself, as Antony seems to wish. Antony, a man, has to speak up for a man and say how perfect he was. Actually, it is Shakespeare, speaking through Antony, who speaks for nature. Poets, poets must assert the dignity and excellence of man against nature because nature on its own preserves no memory of the best human beings. It is only through Shakespeare and other poets, aided by historians, that we know of Brutus, only through Homer, that we know of Achilles. Manly men like Antony have a tendency to believe that manliness speaks for itself, as if manliness were a natural perfection that all can recognize implicitly, that nature makes perfectly obvious. In Shakespeare's view, again, nothing but a glimpse of one speech in one play of Shakespeare, manliness looks better than it does in the scene from Tom Sawyer, since it serves the function of defending us against tyrants like Julius Caesar. It is not merely foolish, but manly men tend to exaggerate the naturalness of their behavior, and they forget the need for poets who are not men of action. Manliness is biased in favor of action. That is a severe criticism when you think about it. One could even say that thinking is by itself a challenge to the superiority of manliness. 
What we need, then, is a study of manliness. And a study asks questions. And my questions about manliness are political, social, and intellectual. The political meaning of manliness comes first. Manliness is an individual quality that causes a human being to come forth, stand up for something, and make an issue of it. It is a quality held by private persons that calls them forth into public and hence into politics. In the past, such persons have been predominantly, though not exclusively, males. And it is, of course, no accident that those who possess a quality that propels them into politics end up as the rulers. Once in politics, they do not modestly depart after the occasion of their entry has passed. What starts out as protest against some injustice easily crosses over into aggression on behalf of a cause and then into, the, into defense of the aggressors. Manliness seems to be a mixture of defensiveness and aggression. The manly types defend their turf, as we've been taught to say by the sociobiologists. They rightly connect manliness to the behavior of other mammals who first create their own turf, marking out its boundaries with any convenient means, and then defend it. Tom Sawyer very decently drew a line in the dust with his bare toe. The analogy to animals obviously suggests something animal in manliness, which in turn suggests other things. What is animal in human beings may be functional, but it is not rational or not fully rational. And if it is part of our biological nature, it is also deeply ingrained. But of course, manliness is specifically human as well. Manly men defend not their turf, but their country, which stands for something. Manliness is best shown in war, the, the defense of one's country at its most difficult and, and dangerous. In Greek, the word for manliness, Andrea, is also the word for courage. Aristotle says that courage is best shown in battle. The issue raised over women in the military today concerns the sovereign claim of manliness as the title to rule. For if women can fight as well as men, why can they not govern as well and as deservedly? Here is a line of thinking that makes war or conflict central to politics and manliness the inspiration of both. It has behind it the evidence not only of males ruling over all societies at almost all times, but also of male preponderance in crime and the prison population. For good and for ill, ma males, apparently impelled by their manliness, have dominated all politics we know of. Is there something inevitable about this domination? Or is it merely experience up to now from which we are free to depart? What is the future of patriarchy? One reason to doubt its future is that manliness seems undemocratic. While the direction of history in America and elsewhere seems to be toward ever more democracy. 
to put oneself forward, even in behalf of someone else or a higher cause, seems to require a display of ego. The manly man will take it personally if you do not pay attention to what he says. But a display of ego implies that one is not satisfied with what satisfies most people. It is at base an aristocratic impulse. Women, having less ego in the popular sense of willingness to display it, are more democratic than men, as Aristophanes shows in his play, The Congresswomen. As more regimes become democratic and existing dem democracies become more democratic, all should benefit from the fact that democracies do not fight each other. Perhaps then manliness will be less in demand at the end of history, when all states are democratic and peaceful. This is what William James feared in his famous essay called The Moral Equivalent of War. Many people know the title of that essay who haven't read the essay. But what the moral equivalent of war is, is manliness. And William James thought it was so valuable that it ought to be generated artificially now that survival no longer makes it necessary. In that essay, he said, this was in 1911, we are headed toward a century of peace and socialism. Yet, in contrast to such fears, based on a supposed incompatibility of manliness and democracy, there is a democratic manliness, as explained by Tocqueville. In democracies, he said, a manly frankness prevails, an open and fearless stance of man to man in which all or all males are equal. A man does not have to hide his feelings as he does in an aristocracy, where he is always living in the presence of superiors and inferiors. When Americans travel today, they often judge the men they meet as unmanly in comparison with American men. Their manners seem precious to us, perhaps because they maintain a certain reserve toward others that is a vestige of the aristocratic past of their societies. Such men can be sexy. Think of Marcello Mastroianni or, or, or Jean Belmondo, two names, I suppose, which are utterly unknown to any of you. <laughs> Those are, uh, those are sexy movie actors, one Italian, one French. But sexy is not the same thing as manly. It is a question, however, whether the sensitive male is either sexy or manly, though he is intended to be very democratic. Will modern women be attracted to the kind of man who is sensitive to them, and perhaps a little too eager to please? In some, manliness as we know it has been at the core of politics. What will happen when the gender gap is closed and politics is feminized or made available to women on an equal basis? Either manliness must be transformed into a sexless quality or its relevance must be reduced if it cannot be eliminated altogether. And a second question, how are manliness and democracy related? Should democracy regard manliness as an enemy because it is a privilege of one sex? Or does democracy require 
and tend to produce a certain manliness. Now I come to the social meaning of manliness. And that covers another set of questions. Since I was just speaking of sex, we may begin from sexual man, a private aspect of manliness that implies the social. Sexually, a man must perform in a way that a woman need not. The performance is, of course, more a matter of desire than choice. But still, there is something theatrical about male sex that easily reminds us of showing off. Whereas brute animals show off for the purpose of display, which has a biological function, human ones show off in the more metaphorical sense of making a drama of yourself. I've already mentioned the use that poets make of manly men and the criticism with which philosophers respond. This duel between poetry and philosophy is featured in Plato's Republic, which could be described as a debate on the value of manliness. To make a drama of yourself is to make a federal case of your private troubles, to invest them with universal or cosmic significance, as did Achilles when Agamemnon stole his girlfriend. Manly men bring causes, cases of injustice to the attention of society or even of the gods, but they do tend to exaggerate. Or, on the contrary, is it not the case that truly manly men do not complain, but suffer without complaint, but they are not humble. They are at their best when championing the deserving cause of someone weaker than they are, but they do not allow themselves to be insulted. They have a strong sense of honor. Though they do not complain, they make it clear that they are not complaining. You could even say that they boast of not complaining or that they boast of not boasting. Manly men make assertions and then they make good on them or fail nobly. Now we're back to performance. <laughs> Another social aspect of manliness is its attitude toward women. Here, uh, the main feminist criticism of manliness enters. Is male chauvinism necessary to manliness? It certainly seems that manly men have had the habit of distinguishing themselves from the unmanly, whom they frequently call effeminate. They do not simply let others make the distinction, but seem to feel the need to insist on it themselves. Theodore Roosevelt was per perhaps <clears throat> the, the loudest talker of any manly man there ever was. Never praise manly deeds without also scorning weaklings and mollycoddles, that was one of his favorite words, who shirk them. Now, is this habit necessary to manliness or can it be dispensed with as obsolete and unworthy? Is it possible to remove the exclusivity of manliness that the feminists indict and still get the same oomph? The energy of manliness seems to go with its eagerness to pass judgment, <coughs> adverse judgments, on others. So if manliness is made sexless, so too perhaps must chauvinism be made sexless. Yet manliness, besides condemning effeminacy, offers gallantry to women. 
What is the true nature of gallantry? Is it really an admission of the superiority of women, as it appears to be? Or is it fundamentally insincere because it always contains an element of disdain? The man who opens the door for a woman makes a show of being stronger than she. You could say, the philosopher Kant said it. But on the other hand, the woman does go first. What about that? And manly men are often those who are most easily deceived by women. Such was the reputation of the Spartans, who were the most manly Greeks. Manly men are romantic about women. Unmanly men are sensitive. Which is better? Which is better for women? That brings us to sexual roles. The feature of all previous society, which is today found most objectionable. Even more than patriarchy, the rule of men, the belief that nature has defined different social roles for men and women is now found insulting to women. The belief has now been a, largely been abandoned in favor of the new notion of choice. Choice, in a new, expanded sense, applies not only to the decision to have an abortion, but also to the range of choices that men used to have. A woman today has the choice of every occupation that used to be reserved for men, plus women's roles. And the latter are now transformed because women choose them rather than being condemned to them. But does this mean that they are performed better because they are now done willingly, or that they are done less well because women feel free to neglect them? Looking at men's roles, one wonders what happens when men no longer have the duties that used to go with being a man. Choice for women is ine inevitably choice for men, too, and perhaps more for them than for women. If women find it easier to love their children than men do, then women's duties toward children are less dutif dutiful or less burdensome, more supported by inclination than men's duties. In the traditional view, the performance of men's duties is aided by another feature of manliness, the desire to protect and support one's family. To be a man means, means to be able to support one's dependents, not merely oneself alone. But the modern woman, above all, does not want to be a dependent. She has perhaps not reflected on what her independence does to the manliness of men. It might seem to make men more selfish. And whether the protection she gladly does without will be replaced by sensitivity or by neglect. The statistics on male abandonment of their children in our day are not heartwarming. The noun parent has always existed, but only recently has the verb to parent been created by sociologists. Previously, the work that verb includes was done separately in two verbs, to mother and to father. Can the separation between father and mother be overcome so that parenting, which is neither, becomes a reality? Father and mother are the fundamental roles that undergird the sexual difference in occupations. 
if you can get rid of that difference in role, then all the other differences will disappear too. One could say that the authoritative father and the loving mother correspond to the public and private spheres as wholes, the one where aggression is paramount, the other where caring is the theme. Abolition of sexual roles might then be expected to produce a mixing of public, understood broadly as the wider world, and private, the realm of familiars. Is this possible and desirable? We now presuppose more or less that men and women are exchangeable. Are we forgetting about how they are complementary? According to our view, any traditional notion that the sexes complement each other serves merely to justify the inferiority of women. Complementarity, if it really takes place, is a kind of equality in which each sex is superior in its place. But when you were sure that the overall superiority has been men's and that women have been the second sex, then to have equality you must go for the exchangeability of the sexes. Yet, there seems to be some truth in the complementarity, say, of aggression and caring in hard and soft temperaments. The one is to accomplish, the other to preserve, and in between is neither. Of course, there are hard women and soft men, but the idea of choice must depend on there being no natural preponderance of one quality or the other in men and women. The logic of choice leads to the ideal of perfect flexibility in which nothing external determines or even influences our choice. That ideal of freedom is very like the final stage of communism that Karl Marx sketched so briefly in which the division of labor has been done away with. Underneath the question of roles is the question of nature. Do men and women have different natures that justify different social roles, even different fates, as Tocqueville said? Or are these so-called natures actually socially constructed? Social construction is a crucial element in the argument that um, sustains the gender-neutral society because that idea enables women to escape the prison of nature. Once women see that their roles have been made for them, not permanently by nature, but artificially by society, they realize that what was made by humans can be unmade and remade by humans. The difficulty is that one woman cannot do this by herself. She needs the help of society, perhaps in the form of the women's movement, Will she then become a prisoner of society, if not nature? Surely the range of choice open to women now is greatly enlarged, but this success makes the remaining restrictions on choice harder to tolerate. What is the manliness stereotype? The definition of manliness I have given Confidence in the face of risk is composed of a number of ingredients. These are qualities thought to belong to men. Some apply to all men, 
others only to certain men, manly men. All are thought to be more or less characteristic of men, not equally true of every man. These qualities, ingredients of manliness, make manliness specifically male. Without them, confidence could as well be womanly, and no doubt there is a womanly confidence. These qualities are, however, typically contrasted to womanly qualities, so that the stereotypes come in pairs. Stereotypes are about differences, and differences are more pronounced in contrast. Stereotypes give women an excuse for not being manly. After all, they're women. At the same time, of course, they take away any excuse for a man who is unmanly. Manliness is an exclusion of women, but a reproach to men, to unmanly men. The basic stereotype is surely that men are aggressive, women are caring. This is the first one you would think of, and perhaps also the basis of the others. That men are promiscuous in sex, women are faithful, or at least unadventurous, follows from the first stereotype. So too do the beliefs that men are hard, women soft, men assertive, women sensitive, men seek risk, women security, men are frank, women are indirect, men take the lead, women seek company, men don't cry, women do. Men are aloof, women sympathetic. Men are cold, women warm. Men boast and show off, women are modest. Men are forceful, women persuasive or seductive. Men are loud, women quiet. Men are laconic, women are loquacious. Men are stoic, women complain. It's also said that men are rational, women emotional. One can easily imagine a sexist male saying that in exasperation to a woman or about a woman. A more refined version of this pairing might say that men are abstract and idealistic. Women are empirical and realistic. How is that related to the basic stereotype of aggression and caring? One might suggest that men use their reason to yearn beyond and to seek to abstract from the present situation, while women use theirs to study and make the best of the present. Thus, both men and women have both reason and emotion, but differently. Well, that's a little on the stereotypes. Let me turn now to the question of of um, whether manliness is nature or nurture. It is, is it permanent or is it something ephemeral? Clearly, manliness is related to what Plato called spiritedness or thumos, the defense and the defensiveness of oneself that human beings share with animals. Spiritedness is less rational and reflective than manliness, which is not what one would call thoughtful. It appears in, in, in women as well as men, though perhaps in different ways. Women get angry too, but somehow with less drama and more subtlety than men. Or are sexist statements like that one based on warmed over common sense now obsolete? 
Perhaps manliness is capable of being abstracted from males and refashioned into something sexually neutral, such as strength of soul. How about that? The philosopher Descartes made a key concept of strength of soul. And there's no doubt that it applies more generally than manliness. One would readily agree that many women have admirable strength of soul. But again, do they have it in the same way as men? It seems that women have more steadiness and endurance, men more alacrity and ambition. In the movie Fargo, a woman police officer triumphs over men who are either unmanly or whose manliness takes the form of vicious cruelty, merely with her plodding but intelligent asexual professionalism, if you've seen that movie Fargo. The, even a pregnant woman officer, police officer triumphs. The movie seems to say that rule-bound professionalism, for example, the professional army, is replacing erratic manliness in occupations that were once the most manly, and that by this means women, who are steadier than men, can replace them, or at least do as well. Women don't fly off the handle so easily. When I was in the army many years ago, every day there was an appeal made to your manliness, you men, is how we were addressed. I'm sure that's not the case today. And now last and briefest, the intellectual meaning of manliness. And that answers the question whether there is a sexual con constitution in thinking. Is there a man's and a woman's point of view? The point of view may not arise from the situation of men and women, but the reverse, the situation from the point of view. Perhaps men and women are characterized more by how they think than by their sexual organs, the higher being the cause of the lower. For if you think only of the sexual organs, you confine the meaning of man and woman to the sexual union, a brief encounter whose consequence is sometimes the birth of a man or a woman. What about the lives of men and women apart from reproduction, when we are not doing nature's work? And perhaps even then, our minds are busy with one would not say thinking, except in the broadest sense. Being a man or a woman is much more than having certain bodily equipment. One has a certain outlook, too. Yet, just because sexuality is also a matter of thinking, it is possible for a woman to see a man's point of view, and barely possible for a man to see a woman's. <laughs> the sexes seem to be asymmetrical in this. It is possible to recognize one's bias, and thus to transcend one's sex. No doubt one doesn't leave one's sex behind when transcending it. The pure thinking of mathematics has no sex. But men and women have different aptitudes for mathematics, even for different parts of mathematics. Here lurks the old mystery of how body and mind are connected. In what way, however, do we transcend our sex? There seem to be two ways. One is by generalizing, and the other is by rising above. Today, we commonly hear people in their academic way speak of self and other. 
And this very abstract discourse spills over into real life, too. By mutual recognition and reconciliation, the two sexes come to understand and appreciate each other. The process consists in leveling. The two sexes, or one of them, the male, may begin with pretensions, but they learn to abandon them. You learn to want or love someone on your own level. But what of eros, or yearning, or love, that aims at something higher than oneself, love of beauty, love of wisdom, love of perfection? Here is transcendence in a truer sense that does not generalize or level down pretensions, but on the contrary seeks something rare and, one, and wants to justify one's pretensions. The asymmetry of the sexes that I spoke of applies to abstracting from one's own sex. Women often understand men, but men rarely understand women. Men tend to be manly, the quality that makes them oblivious of the sexual difference. It is part of manliness not to see that manly is male, and therefore lacks something. The manly man thinks manliness is enough and doesn't understand what is missing. When one is oblivious of sexual differences, it is easy to leave them behind. Women, understanding men better, are more sensitive to sexual differences, hence more aware of themselves, hence less able to forget themselves. Men, through their manliness, are more transcendent. Women, without that advantage and that encumbrance, are better aware of what is left behind. Is manliness a virtue? It's too close to our biology, which means to a quality of lower animals, to be called a virtue. But in humans, the quality of manliness can ally with the reasons specific to humans to, so as to rise above its generic nature, in the process becoming specifically human, and at the same time a possible virtue. The alliance with reason enables manliness to pass from aggressive defense of one's own to noble sacrifice for a cause that is beyond oneself. But, of course, women have reason, too, and they're not devoid of aggressiveness. Therefore, the price of humanizing manliness, of raising it from quality to virtue, is allowing women to participate in it. It will not be equal participation because, as Aristotle said, men find it easier to be courageous. And likewise, women find it easier to be moderate. In thinking of the sexual difference, and of human nature generally, you cannot avoid Aristotle's hedging phrase, for the most part. For the most part, men will always have more manliness than women have, and it is up to both sexes, having faced that fact, to fashion this quality into a virtue. Thanks, that's it. Thank you for listening to the County University Classroom from the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission here at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you would like to support us in that mission so we can keep hosting lectures like this one, head over to isi.org donate to support our work. Every little bit helps us continue to do the important work of being America's County University. Thanks, and I'll see you next time in the County University Classroom.